Good morning. All right. I know it's still cold out there. It's not the 20s like it was at Christmas, but 40s is still cold for those of us who live in the South. My parents are in northeastern Pennsylvania, and they laugh at how cold it is here. Uh, anyway. Good morning, my name is Steve. If you are new, welcome to Citadel Square. Uh, beginning of the year, we are uh, in a section of the Bible here in the book of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it, turn to the book of Luke, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 together. We're on the other side of Christmas. Jesus has been born. The angels are done singing. The shepherds have visited Joseph and Mary. And what we enter into here in all of Luke 2 is probably one of the most uh, particular. It's, it's Jesus in his first kind of 40 or 50 days. Uh, and Luke is going to give us some witnesses to Jesus. As we've already seen some witnesses uh, in the shepherds who showed up in Joseph and Mary's uh, house, wherever they were, uh, to look at the, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now Joseph and Mary step into their life uh, as parents. We've, we've been introduced in the book of Luke to two families. Uh, we've, we began, if you're in Luke 2, just go back to Luke 1 just for a second. And I want to remind you of the first family that we were introduced to here in Luke 1 verse 5. Here's what it says in Luke 1 verse 5. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Uh, and we also have Joseph and Mary. Arguably, these two families are the most significant New Testament families. Uh, they're out of, from their families come the most significant characters in the New Testament and John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. I think that's a pretty safe case to make. Would you agree? Uh, they're pretty significant figures. Uh, and as we move into the story of Joseph and Mary bringing up Jesus and what they're about to do, we're introduced to two witnesses and Simeon and Anna that we're going to look at them next week uh, as Joseph and Mary enter into the temple and present Jesus Christ. He's affirmed by these two witnesses, these two older witnesses who are going to acknowledge who Jesus is and what he does. And we'll look at all of that next week. But what I wanted to do briefly before we get into sort of the Jesus narrative and what goes on, we don't have a lot to cover between Jesus's uh, circumcision. He shows up at 12 in the temple and then it's quiet for about 20 years until he shows up at his baptism. Uh, so we have somewhat of a compressed story about Jesus and his childhood that begins very, very early at day eight. And that's what we're going to look at here. But what I wanted to do is, is take these two families and pull them out as examples just for a minute to talk about family to talk about what does it mean for us to build uh, our homes and our kids and our practices in our home around God and his word and his Messiah. How do we do that? And what I want to do is pull out some principles here from both Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, which I'll just mention in passing, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were an old couple. They were a faithful couple. They were a blameless couple in their day and age, walking in all the rules and statutes that God had given them. Did they have problems? Did they have struggles? Did they have unanswered prayers? They did. They had unanswered prayers. They faced difficulty as they walked faithfully together in their marriage and in their life with God. Well, Joseph and Mary are at the front end of their story of what it means to be a family. And I think we've got lots of young families, people who are beginning. If you have a kid under five, raise your hand in our church. 
See, we got lots of families who are, who are at that beginning phase of uh, raising kids. And what I want to show you from these two families is that God is intentional to pull out for us and explain to us the fact that these families are committed to God and to his word. Their religious practices are a part, they're a, they're a part of the warp and the woof of who they are in their, uh, in their family, in their practices, in their family culture. Now, you may come up from a family that had zero religious upbringing whatsoever. You may be, uh, like my kids, uh, you know, pastor's kids. You may be the child of missionaries. Whatever your background, I think it's important for all of us, no matter what kind of family we come from, to consider how does God want to build a family? What does God want out of our families as we take those first steps into figuring out what does it mean to be a mom and a dad? Suzanne and I, uh, when we got married... We had plans and dreams and ambitions, and we were thinking about, God, where are we going to be? How are we going to serve you? What is going to happen? Uh, we thought we were going to be around family. We thought we were going to land in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And quickly, within the first, you know, seven or eight months of our marriage, we got married. We, uh, I didn't get a, a several different kind of jobs. I got a job offer in Charleston, South Carolina. We found out we were pregnant. We left our family. My family's 12 hours away. Hers is 20. And we land here in Charleston, South Carolina. After one week of being here, we find out not only that we're pregnant, but we're also having twins. Now, arguably, that's a pretty significant upheaval in your life. And I still remember getting in the car, in the borrowed car, because we had a two-door Honda Accord when we had the twins, and we borrowed an SUV to be able to get the girls home. And I remember putting them in the back of the car going, they just send you home with five-pound people. <laughs> That's it. You're there two days. How are you doing? You good? Are you sleeping? That nah, don't matter. You put them in this, in this thing, in the car, and you drive away. You wave to the nurse who's just standing there waving at you. <laughs> What do you do? Your only job, keep them alive. <laughs> How do we do today, baby? Are we sleeping? I don't know. Are they alive? I don't know. We, we, slept, we slept next to the pack and play with your arms going, are they breathing? Okay, they're both breathing. <laughs> are they breathing? Okay. And that's, that was like, that was our first, I don't know, six months? No, Suzanne said 12 months. Uh, so you have, boy, when you bring a baby into the world, life changes. Amen? Life changes. And you have no idea as a parent. I don't care how much training you think you have from your family of upbringing. When someone hands you a baby that you have to change and feed and smile and keep alive, you don't know what you're doing because you don't have any sleep in your brain. So here you are as this brand new baby. Here's Joseph and Mary stepping into raising the Son of God. Now, arguably, this could be a great sermon. I know you would want to take this sermon and give me seven principles so that my child could be like Jesus. But that's not how this works. Arguably, you're going to raise somebody more difficult than the Son of God. Because he's perfect, and parents are not, and he turned out okay. But we've got sinful kids, right? Right? 
we've got to figure out as parents what does it mean to begin to form children in the ways that they think and talk and act and feel. Where do we go? What resources do we have? How do we do this as parents? And God does not leave us alone in this. Is that good news? He doesn't abandon us like the nurse at the hospital and go, "You, it's, it's you. You made it. You get to keep it. God gives us wisdom. He gives us the generations of people who've gone before us. And I want to take the lives of Joseph and Mary and show you what God does through them to bring about the complete, perfect, faithful, obedient Christ for us. Now, can they take credit for Jesus? No. All they can do is be faithful with what God has in front of them. So here's what I want to do as we begin. I want to give you four spots in the Old Testament because you need these to understand what Luke is trying to tell you. Okay? Take these down real quick. You can flip back and forth to them or you can look at them later. I'll read them to you. Or you can ignore this altogether and wait until I'm done giving the list. Uh, Genesis chapter 17. Exodus chapter 13. Leviticus 12. Deuteronomy 6. I'll give them to you again. Genesis 17, Exodus 13, Leviticus 12, and Deuteronomy 6. We're only going to be in about five or six verses here as we look at what Joseph and Mary do to prepare Jesus to be who he has to be for us. All right, let's pray and we'll jump in here together. Father in heaven, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you would change us and shape us as moms and dads, as those who aspire to be moms and dads, as those maybe who are grandmas and granddads in this room. That as we desire as a church to impact the next generation, would we uh, deposit the faith once for all delivered to the saints into the minds and hearts of the children that you have given to us. Would you make us men and women who cling to the word of God, who put our whole hope in the promises that you've made to us that are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, bless us as we study, as we learn, and that you would give great grace for us to understand what you would have um, for us to learn here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 2. Y'all there? Luke 2, we're going to be in 21 to 24, and then we're going to look at like 39 and 40 at the end, and that's, that will be done. Luke 2, verse 21, at the end of eight days. Now, uh, if you've been with us through the course of Luke, you remember that the story uh, of John the Baptist, we've already seen that story, right? We saw them, uh, John, get born, and at eight days, the circumcision and the naming happens. And something similar happens here to Jesus to let us know that these are individuals who are going about the normative Jewish mosaic law practices in their day. The boy was circumcised at eight days old. Now, the high point of John's story wasn't so much the circumcision, was it? The high point of John's story was what? The tension we looked at was the naming of John, right? Because everybody thought John's name ought to be Zechariah. John's name ought to be somebody who is in uh, his granddad. He ought to have a name that was reflected from the family. And he had a significant moment in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life drawn out for us to see that, no, this boy was named preconception. This boy is going to be named John. So what I want to do here, just for a minute, we mentioned circumcision in passing, but circumcision is a pretty important ethnic Jewish rite in the life of the nation. And the place it shows up is Genesis chapter 17. So here's what he says in Luke 2.21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised. Now, 
Circumcision, I want you to go back here, keep your finger in Luke 2, and start with that first Old Testament reference. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17, verse 9, says this. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who's not your offspring, both he who's born in your house and he who's bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken his covenant. My, I'm sorry, broken my covenant. So essentially what we're doing here in Jesus' circumcision is making him a part of the historic people of God that have come down from Abraham. If you read the genealogies, the, the, the history of who Jesus is in Matthew. Matthew starts with Abraham. He starts, listen, he starts with God's promise to Abraham. Abraham's entire life is characterized by waiting for God to be faithful to his promise, right? That characterizes 25 years of Abraham's relationship with God. So right from the beginning when Jesus is circumcised, the thing that you should be thinking is, ah, we have a God who has been faithful to his promises. We have a story in our history where Abraham had to wait and put his faith and hope and trust in the promises of God to do something that Abraham could not do. That was the promise that God gave. You will have a child. You won't, Abraham, you won't have a child with Hagar. Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And I will be faithful to my word. Now, if you know Genesis and where this happens in the course, we are one year away from God being faithful to his word after God speaking to Abraham and making him wait for decades. So we see here that Christ is essentially an ethnic Jew. His life is traced back to Abraham and to the promises God has given Abraham. Now, this becomes a big deal in the New Testament because who's the child of promise in Genesis chapter 17? He's Isaac. He's the, he's the child of promise, the one who Abraham and Sarah cannot bring about except God do something to fulfill his word for them. It's Isaac. Well, when you get to the New Testament, here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 3. Excuse me, Galatians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So right from the beginning, at day eight, what is echoing in the minds of Luke's readers is that this is an individual who now truly and actually fulfills the promises that God has made for 2,000 years. All of them come to rest on this boy. That we heard that in 2 Corinthians, didn't we? All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. How do we have confidence of God's favor toward us? We look to Christ. How do we have confidence that Christ has been faithful both to God's rules, God's promises, God's laws, and faithful to us to take our sin? We look to Christ. So right from the beginning, at day eight, 
We have echoes of the faithfulness of God, echoes of Old Testament promises going through our minds to remind us that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. You with me so far? Okay, come on back to Luke 2 if you're not there already. Luke 2, the second thing we, we learn is the same thing that we learned about John, that this individual is named preconception. Remember Gabriel? He said, you will have a son, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and he shall call his name Jesus. Just like John, preconception, this individual is named. <clears throat> so from the beginning, what do we know about Joseph and Mary? We know that Joseph and Mary exist in the Mosaic Law economy. They exist at a time where they are Jews looking forward to how God will fulfill his promises to his people. The Old Testament Jews are always on their toes. They're always looking for. Remember how that's how Luke starts. Luke starts with the fulfillment of a prophecy that goes back 400 years. Saying, I will send Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And here comes John the Baptist in the feet of Elijah. So you have the Old Testament is always looking forward, always leaning to see when will God fulfill his word? When will God be faithful to what he has said? So Joseph and Mary are similar. They are leaning forward. They are hoping in the very promises of God that go back 2,000 years. And that's been consistent all throughout Luke's gospel. You go back 400 to, to Malachi, you go back 1,000 to David, you go back 2,000 to Abraham. We're always looking forward to see how God is going to fulfill his promises. Is that a good principle for a family? That we have promises that we are hoping in, that God will be faithful to, that we cling to, that we lay hold of? Well, that's Joseph and Mary. That's just like us. So you have a little bit of a contrast here between Jesus' family and John's family. Remember John's family when John shows up? When John shows up, you had friends, you had neighbors, you had all sorts of people who were gathered around to see this miracle child that came from this elderly couple. Where are Joseph and Mary? Joseph and Mary are away from home. Joseph and Mary are on a road trip. Joseph and Mary had no angels, no neighbors, no friends. Nobody around them. They were totally on their own. There was no angels that announced the birth to them. Nothing miracle, no, nothing magical happened. They wrapped the baby, put him in a manger, and they had a whole bunch of shepherds knock on the door. In the mass of people who perhaps have had kids at that time, they were totally unremarkable apart from God letting us know who this boy is. So you have a contrast where John's birth is popular. Jesus' birth, you'd miss it unless God took time to show us what was going on. Now, Eight days, Jesus is circumcised. What happens next is uh, you got 33 days of ceremonial impurity and uncleanliness for the woman. And then at the end of 33 days, the woman and the man and the boy, they come up to the temple. Now they had the baby in Bethlehem. They make their way over to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up here in Luke 2.22. Look at 2.22. When the time came... For their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So you got two things here happening. You've got purification and you've got presentation. I'm going to handle presentation first. Presentation is somewhat of a unique uh, moment here because commentators note that there should be something happening here that Luke doesn't mention. So Luke either compresses the account or he ignores it altogether in the presentation of Jesus in presenting the child before the Lord. But the background to this is in Exodus. So keep your finger in Luke 2. Go back to Exodus 13. 
You're doing great with the Old Testament flipping. I'm really proud of you. Wait, I mean, you're tracking. I can hear all the Bibles going. Way to go. So let's talk about the presentation first. Here's Exodus chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. This is on the other side of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. And if you know the last uh, miracle that happens to for Pharaoh to drive the people out of Egypt is the killing of the firstborn. And God in Exodus 13 makes sure that you know that that is no arbitrary judgment. It's something that's very, very important to God. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel of both man and beast is mine. Now go down to Exodus 13.11 real quick. You've got an explanation of the, uh, of the Passover. But look at Exodus 13.11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you'll, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of the animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you'll break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or the frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now come back to Luke. What's happening? It's that God is saying the first to open the womb is mine. There's a specialness about the first of uh, animals or the first of sons. The redemption price was, five, was basically five bucks. It was five shekels. And what happened was when God established the priesthood among his people, he would take the nation of Levi or the, uh, the tribe of Levi and bring them near to him so that they would be priests. And then what he would do is he would balance and make everybody else who wasn't a priest pay to support the priesthood so the priesthood would continue. It was kind of the religious engine of the nation. So it was kind of like selective service. Every single individual, every single boy who's born would have to pay, essentially, to be redeemed, and they wouldn't be a priest, but they would give their due to the priesthood. But you don't have that here. Luke doesn't explain that for us. So either he bypasses it altogether to show us something different about Jesus. And the thing that's different about Jesus is in his presentation. Now, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you may have 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 2 is the story of Samuel. It's a story of another barren couple who prays to the Lord to have a son, but uh, Hannah prays a very particular prayer. It's a unique prayer in all of the Old Testament because she says, if God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. God, if you will be faithful to open my womb and give me a boy, the first boy, God, he will be committed and given to you. And that is who Samuel is. So that when Hannah weans Samuel, what she does, she takes him up to the temple and she said, he's all God's. Everything that God wants to do with this boy, he can do. God, I renounce my rights over my kid's life and I put him wholly in your hands. 
So imagine, here's Joseph and Mary coming up to the temple, having heard the prophecy of Gabriel, having experienced the miracle conception, and now bringing their boy up into the temple and essentially saying, God, this is your kid. You have given him to me. I get to raise him. But God, this is your boy. God, would you do in the life of this boy everything you want to do? Now, is that a pretty important thing for parents to pray? Gosh, do we, do we need to pray that, moms and dads? God, he's lent to me, but he's really yours. God, she's lent to me, but he's really yours. God, would you do in the, the life of this kid what I cannot do? Would they, would they, this is why I pray for my kids, would their hearts, God, be totally yours? Would you take them wherever you want to take them, but God, would you save them and rescue them and redeem them, and God, would they be holy and presented for your purposes in their generation? And all Joseph and Mary are doing are what is normal in their day and time. Now, <clears throat> verse 23 is an aside by Luke. Luke writes to non-Jews, essentially. He writes to people who don't understand the rules and regulations and Mosaic law. He writes for the wider Gentile world. And when Luke writes verse 23 for us, he gives us insight because we don't know what the rules and rituals were for that day. We don't know if it was eight-day circumcision. We don't know what you do in the presenting of the, the uh, uh, sacrifices. We're just, we're not there but Luke helps us in that because he gives us verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. So he says, this family is ruled by a set of regulations, by a set of laws given to us by God that informs their practices. It informs the kind of life, their religious practices and rhythms and culture of their day and time. So, as it is written in the law of the Lord, well, that's good. I can know what, what, what and why they're doing that. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, remember what Gabriel said to Mary. You don't need to turn back. This is in Luke 1. But the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The child will be set apart. The son of God. So here's this, this moment for Christ is not just Jesus in the ethnic history of Israel. It's Jesus now stepping into all of the promises that God has made from the patriarchs forward. But also right here we're introduced to the fact that Jesus is now walking at eight days old according to the law of the Lord. Now, who cares? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because we have to establish the fact that Jesus is totally and completely faithful to the law of God. And he's totally and faithfully, completely obedient to the law of God from day eight. That's when his obedience starts. Well, how do you know that you are in good standing with God? Well, Steve, I was raised in the church. You, not like this. Right? I know all the stories, not like this. Not like the faithfulness and obedience of Joseph and Mary to put their son in the context of all of the faithfulness to God's promises and all of the faithfulness to God's laws. They're walking in what God has told them to do and they're aligning their practices, their culture, their rhythms with what God has said. Now, 
Look at verse 24. This explains the purification. You have the presentation, which is the consecration of Jesus to service. Consecration. God, all of what you want to do in and through this kid, he is totally and completely yours. We present him to you. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, this explains the purification process. And it tells us another particular thing about Jesus' family that it would kind of be easy to miss. But look at what it says, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I think the last time you've heard about turtle doves was probably at Christmas. <laughs> turtle doves are not a common term that I use at any point throughout the year, and the only time I hear them is at Christmas time. But this is also fulfilling or explaining for us something that is happening in the life of Joseph and Mary that if you don't understand the background is easy to miss. So we've done Genesis, we've done Exodus, we've got to do Leviticus. Can you find Leviticus? Book number three. Turn back again to Leviticus chapter 12. And there's just one point here that Luke includes for us to let us know something about Jesus' family. Luke 12 verse 6. This is the purification of the woman after childbirth. But here's what it says in Luke, Leviticus 12, verse 6. When the days of your purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Leviticus 12, verse 8 says this, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And the thing I want you to see, now go back to Luke, well, why, why is that there? Why is it that Luke makes sure to mention that she offers a sacrifice that isn't a lamb, but a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons? And the essential thing that Luke wants us to know is that Jesus is not from a wealthy family. They weren't impoverished. Joseph had a trade. He was a carpenter. But they weren't, they didn't get the newest and the best. What characterized their life and their rhythm was not some continual movement toward more and better financial strength. So the question is, what's beautiful about the law is that God makes sure that everybody can come. The rich can come and the poor can come. Isn't that great? That he knows if you are too poor for a lamb in your household, I'll accept it and you will be cleansed. So it shows us that Jesus, well, we already know that Jesus is from Nazareth, which is not a very popular part of town. It's a kind of despised part around Galilee. But also we know that Jesus is from a poor family. He's from a family that doesn't have it all. Now, does money have a, a way of disguising the spiritual life of people? What do you think? It sure does, doesn't it? Money has a way of causing us to lie to ourselves. To think that we are better off spiritually than we really are. And what Joseph and Mary show for us is you can be both godly and poor. Isn't that incredible? I would rather be godly and wealthy. Right? I know you guys are all, you've totally renounced, you know, your worldly possessions. But for me... I'd like to be successful in my career. I'd like to make sure I make tons and more and more money. But Luke drops this in here just to let us know that the savior of the world, the one who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the dry lands, showed up in a family who did not have a lot. 
Now, move down to Luke 2, 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. We're skipping Simeon and we're skipping Anna just for a minute. We'll see them next week. But here's what happens on the other side of their encounter in the temple. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, the performed everything isn't, it's a different kind of word, especially in Luke's writings. In the book of Luke, it means fulfilled. And any time this word is used, all throughout Luke's gospel, it's always in relation to what Jesus must do to be the Messiah. He must be crucified. What is written about him in the law and the prophets must be fulfilled. He must be numbered among the sinners. It's the word that means... uh, essentially fulfilled, accomplished, that Joseph and Mary go up into the temple and they don't just do some rites that they know are normal. What they do is essential to moving the story forward to let us know that Jesus is completely faithful to God from day eight. He's completely faithful to fulfill all of the law's requirements. Joseph and Mary did everything that they were supposed to do. Do you think they knew all of what Jesus was about to accomplish? Do you think they knew all of what was going to be associated with having a son who is the Messiah? No. But they were faithful with what they knew to do in their time and place. And when they had done it all, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now here's the result of their obedience. It's in verse 40. Luke captures for us uh, this snapshot of these families so that we can see Uh, that their godliness is pulled forward for us in the narrative, right? We look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and we go, they were faithful to be the men and the woman that they were supposed to be in their day and time. We were looking at Joseph and Mary to say that they were faithful to do things that they were supposed to do in their day and time. But their obedience is, is almost unnoticed, isn't it? You ever feel like parents when you're doing stuff and trying to, you're trying to be godly? You're trying to raise your kids and you're doing stuff in the home that is generally, you feel like it's, you know, like planting seeds in concrete. I don't, did that accomplish anything? But what's fascinating about the story about Joseph and Mary is we just see their simple faithfulness. Who had to circumcise Jesus? Joseph and Mary did. Who had to bring him to the temple? Joseph and Mary did. Who had to consecrate him to the Lord? Joseph and Mary did. Who had to bring the sacrifices? It was Joseph and Mary. Are they responsible? Can they lay claim to the fact that he's our son? (laughs) Who'd you have? Billy? Yeah, we had Jesus. (laughs) So you don't look to Joseph and Mary as going like, you know, way to go. They were simply faithful. They were simply obedient. Is God going to do something far beyond what we could ask or imagine in Jesus Christ? Yes. Verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now you have a similar summary statement to the life of John. John says, uh, in John, when Luke talks about John, he said the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. Jesus is different. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. You know what wisdom is? It's continually applying God's word to your life. We're at day about 50. And you're given a summary statement that at every season of this boy's life, he is able to assimilate what is true and apply it to his circumstances in such a way that God's favor was always upon him. 
Isn't that incredible? At every season, every challenge, every time, he had an opportunity to apply what he knew about God to his circumstances, to his family, to his friends. He was faithful and God's favor was upon him. Now, let me give you one more spot. You may not have noticed this in the way we did this, but I want to just show you this to, to help us think about application. Okay, let's, let's apply this. What do you apply in raising the Son of God? Just hang on. I, I, don't, I don't know either, but stick with me. <laughs> uh, look with me at how Luke tells us this story. Look at Luke uh, 2, 22. You may not have noticed this, but Luke emphasizes the law of the Lord five different times in this narrative. Did you know that? Look at verse 22, law of Moses. Verse 23, law of the Lord. Verse 24, law of the Lord. Look even, we didn't look at this, look at verse 27. They did for him according to the custom of the law. Verse 39, uh, where's 39? There it is. Uh, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Why is Luke so persnickety about this? Because he's letting you know that at every point, Jesus is faithful. At every point, Jesus is obedient. A lot of people look at Jesus and they go, man, he's a great teacher. Uh, he's got really good things to say. He wrote that thing about the tortoise and the hare. Man, just what an impressive individual Jesus is. You got that now? Just, I'll give you 30 seconds. You'll get it in a minute. Uh, he's just this impressive teacher. No, no, no. Jesus was faithful to all of the law of God from day eight all the way on until his crucifixion. Do you know that? In thought, in word, in deed. You don't need a Jesus who's a philosopher and a great teacher. You need a Jesus who is perfect. You need a Jesus who is sinless. You need a Jesus who is totally faithful to God and obedient to God in thought and word and deed for every single moment he has been alive. You need to know that he is your wisdom. You need to know that at every single time Jesus faced things that cause us to stumble, Jesus wins. Now, there's another word that shows up three different times throughout this section. It's the word according. They did what was according to the law. They didn't just have, they had two things. These families, and this is the thing I want to share with you. They have two things that I think generalizes and characterizes every single family. They have priorities and they have practices. Every single family in this room has certain priorities. Whether you know what they are, whether you uh, are ex explicit about them, whether you share them with your kids, whether you talk about them with your spouse, you have certain ways in which you live your life and you have anchors in your life that are your priorities. You plan around them. You think around them. You spend money on them. You discuss them. They characterize the things that get you excited. But you also have practices. Things that are expressions of those priorities. And when you have a kid beyond that phase of starting to keep them alive, you are fighting always as a parent to bring your practices in line with your priorities. Amen, parents? And man, I, I gosh, for the first decade of having kids, we would have these great priorities, but our practices would just, it would be terrible. And I'd be like, why can't we figure this thing out? We, you know, we would try to get together, all right, how does our family try to do X? I don't know, what are our priorities? I'm not sure, we've got four under four. Keep them alive, sleep, beyond that, I don't know. But what Joseph and Mary show for us is that there's something that characterizes the culture of their home, their priorities. They didn't just talk about God's word and go, I don't know, should we circumcise them or not? 
I don't know, what do you think? Should we take them to the temple or not? They had priorities that guided their decision making so that ultimately their practices aligned with their priorities. You with me? Let me read to you. We don't have time to go there because I, I got too excited about the Old Testament, but Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. When Jesus in Matthew 22 faces the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to him and they say, what's the most important law? And Jesus gives to them and he quotes them Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. But what you'll miss about Jesus' commandments is what Moses gives for us in Deuteronomy 6 is a command for families. Because the very next thing he says in Deuteronomy 6 is these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You'll teach them to your children. You'll talk of them when you're in your house. When you sit and walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you'll bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as frontless between your eyes. You'll write them on the doorposts of your house. For Joseph and Mary, the law of the Lord and the word of God was central to their home because they were faithful Jews. They constantly understood that what God said needs to characterize our home. And how much more as Christians who look to Christ who is the fulfillment of all of the promises, who has been faithful to all of God's law, who has taken our sin to the cross, who has died, buried, and raised again, who is the word made flesh, ought he to be the central of our homes. You with me? So it's an issue of priority. If you don't, parents, if you don't explicitly, you know Paul talks about discipleship with Timothy? He talks about discipleship with Timothy as being related to, he uses analogies, and he said it's like a soldier. It's like an athlete. It's like a farmer. And then he tells Timothy, think about this stuff. See, Discipline, Christian culture making in the home requires faithful, tenacious, courageous, principle filled. We're not going to do that. We are going to do this. What if we don't see fruit? I don't know. It's right because God says it's right. It takes that kind of courage in the home. So let me ask you in your home, moms and dads, if you were to go back over the last two weeks in your home, what would you say your priority is? What practices in your home are revealing maybe some misconstrued priorities? And look, I've done this. I've had to have conversations with Suzanne where I go, all right, we got to talk, and we got to talk about where we are as a family. How are we doing? Sometimes you got to climb to the top of the tree and go, where are we? What practices do we have that we need to change and shift because kids change, kids get older, kids get more rambunctious, kids start to understand different things and we need to pivot and turn and shift and change to make sure that our priorities are really guiding our home. Now, <clears throat> let me talk to you about, you got, we got young families in the room. Let me tell you just what I have learned over the past 13 or so year, years being a parent. You want to talk to somebody about teenagers? It's not me. I don't have teenagers for another year or so. There's people out here with teenagers. They can do that. Let me talk to you about my past 10 years and tell you what we do in our home that we've had to rehearse and we've had to change. Every morning we get up six days a week. 
and we make sure the kids get up, we get them breakfast, and we get them to the table. And we spend, I don't spend 40 minutes. When I first got into ministry, I met a young couple, and the girl asked me, you have three, we had three daughters, one on the way, I think, at that point. And she said, do all your girls get dressed up in dresses since you're a pastor, and I'll sit around you in the living room, and you open the Bible, and you, I said, no, it's not like that at all. So we, we are a normal family in that way. I, I'm a pastor. You can do this. It's not anything secret that I have as a plan or magic that I do uh, for us in the cultural rhythms in our home. We gather the kids together. We sit them down at the table. We spend five minutes reading through a portion of the Bible. That's it. It's not 40 minutes. It's not time on Sunday. It's not a sermon that I prepared. We read, reflect, respond. That's it. Our whole time together takes no more than 15 minutes, depending on whether or not people have questions, need to poop, spilled a bowl of cereal, or anything else that might happen at the table. I've got kids from 12 all the way down to three. I've got six of them. You might not have six. You might have two. It might be way easier for you. We sit around the table and we talk. Here's what God's word has said. Now let's think about it. What are the things that we have heard, family? What are the things that have jumped out to you. Tell me in your own words what was happening in that story. And then we teach our kids to respond. And I teach them to respond very simply in two ways. Because one of the first, uh, two ways, here are the two things I tell them to do. One, what can we give thanks for? Because one of the first things to go in a family, in, any, in my life, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen? How fast do I forget that verse? Daily. Daily. So I want to tell my kids there is always something that God is doing both in his word and around in your life that you can give thanks for. And we want to practice that. We want to practice that discipline of thankfulness. So God, we want to orient our lives to God. God, what are you doing that we can give thanks for? Number two, we ask for help. We read, we reflect, and we respond by doing this. God, how can we thank you? Number two, God, where, where do we need help? And we got all sorts of things that, that pop up. God, we need help with self-control. God, we need help with our words. God, we need help with being an encouragement. God, we need help with our friends. God, we need help with this. And I want to get into the minds of our kids that we are constantly thanking and asking. God, we need you. You are, not, you are uh, our strength. You are our hope. And you are our help. One of the things we don't do as a family is gather around and recite all the rules of the Old Testament. Do you know why? Because we have Jesus. We have someone who was totally faithful to God's promises. We have someone who was totally faithful to the law. We have someone whose obedience is for us and given to us free and clear. And we come to him and ask and he forgives that fast. And what I want my kids, who was laughing? Somebody was laughing. That was good. What I want my kids to know is that he is the hero of the family. We don't orient ourselves around the law. Is there, boy, one of the things that you learn early in parenting is you're, you are constantly saying no. Don't touch that. Don't lick that. Don't put that in your mouth. Stop saying that. Why are you whistling? What is happening? All the time. And what I want our kids to know ultimately as a result of our time together is that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Is that every family needs Jesus. That dad needs Jesus. Mom needs Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to meet him, know him, love him, serve him, follow him because he forgives your sins and is totally faithful to give his grace to you. I want all of my kids to know that. I want your kids to know that. And you can't do that one hour a week. Mom and dad, you got to do that six days a week. Because your kids need it. And you need it. You need to be reminded of your need for Christ who's stronger than your inability to plan family devotions. You need Christ, someone who forgives your sins. You need a good father in heaven to orient your life and your family culture together. 
So that's what we do. We read, we reflect, no more than 15 minutes. Like I said, at the end of 15 minutes, we done and we're going. Because we got a lot of stuff to do with six kids. You with me? So listen, Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth are there to tell you that it is worth orienting your life around God's promises. It is worth orienting your family around Jesus who has died for sinners, buried and raised again to give grace to all who call upon him in truth. Amen? Father, for our families in this room here this morning, we pray that you might show us what our true priorities are. God, that you might show us practices and ways that we might be creative and get the story of Jesus Christ into our family culture, into the things that we talk about with our kids, into the ways in which we need you to forgive us for not being the parents that we need to be. Father, we don't look to our own obedience to be the thing that secures our children's future. We know that you've got no grandkids, but we plead that you would move in the lives and the hearts of our kids. That you would come into their life and forgive their sins and reveal Jesus to them. That they would know you and love you and walk with you all the days of your life. And Father, we put them in your hands for you to do things that only you can do. That you might get glory through your grace. So Father, give us courage to be simply, faithfully obedient parents. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.